Welcome to the Property Funder podcast. I am here with Nick. And before we start talking to Nick and learn a lot more about him, if you're new to the podcast, welcome. And if you aren't already a subscriber, hopefully once you've listened to this this podcast episode or a few of them, you'll want to subscribe. Also, if you are consuming us on iTunes uh, or Apple Podcasts, can you please give us a five-star rating and that will enable more people to get the wisdoms and life experiences um etc from uh, from great guests like nick uh, so more people can get exposed to that but uh, kicking us off uh, nick what's your full name and tell us a bit more about yourself what, what business are you in uh that kind of thing please please tell us more about yourself cool hi michael thanks a lot for having me on um i'm nikhil capilla but most people know me as Nick. Um, I'm the director of a family organisation called SimCap Childcare. Uh, we currently uh, own and operate a nursery school in the Christchurch area of Dorset. Um, we've been uh, running for nearly three years now. Um, there's a lot of family history in the early years and educational sector that I'm sure that we'll talk about. Um, and hopefully in a few months time, we'll be opening up our second setting uh, in the village of Pennington, which is close to the seaside town of Limington. Um, away from work, I'm happily married to Anu, uh, who's an NHS doctor. And I've got two uh, lovely young girls, Simran nine and Mahi, who's just turned four and who occasionally drives us up the wall. But yeah, all fun and games. And um, so let's talk through your career journey because it's quite an interesting one. And, um, you know, and I, and I guess maybe we can also talk about the, the family's experience, not just in the, not just in the childcare sector, but also in, in adjacent sectors, because it sounds like um, there's quite an entrepreneurial family uh, background there too. Yeah, th there is. I mean, growing up, uh, I grew up, you know, and the, the backdrop was always the nursery sector because my mum was a special educational needs teacher. Uh, my dad worked in the motor industry. Mum couldn't find a good nursery school for my younger sister. Um, so she decided to open one up herself and it um, started off very small with one child, my sister, in the annex of a primary school. Um, and it slowly grew, you know, one child turned into 10, turned into 20, to the point where my dad actually left his role, which was a very good one in the motor trade, uh, to join her. Um, and that nursery grew from those humble origins in the, uh, the annex of a primary school to a 130 place nursery in porter cabin buildings and then a 230 place nursery in an old monk's priory local to where we lived um so there was always that nursery background i think it was almost a gimme that i after university would probably join my parents in that in that business because it was um it was such a good one to be involved in um and uh, that's actually what happened uh, after I left university. Um, but then my career path has taken so many, I'd say, random journeys 
since joining them for a couple of years after university. And then sort of 10, 15 years later, I'm back where we started in, in the nursery sector. So so let's let's talk through that. Um, let, let's talk through that that journey, because obviously I know you very well. We're good friends, but uh, it, it's kind of it's, it, it, it. You took some fascinating turns along the way. So so like, just cast your mind back to university. So what is it you, you read at university? What was what was your, your degree in? So the degree was in uh, politics and modern history, um, and that was very much my passion. You know, A-levels were politics, history and philosophy. And for me, it wasn't really a chore. It was, um, you know, it was really what I was interested in. Um, and I decided to go and do that at university purely out of the passion for learning more about those subjects. Um, and also with the knowledge that I didn't have to do something very vocational because I was going to be joining my parents in the nursery sector. Um, and, you know, that's what happened literally, I think even before I graduated formally, I left university and I joined my mum and dad um, in the nursery school, working very much in the sort of a back office role, predominantly with my dad, who, um, was very sort of, you know, um, finance orientated um, and uh, my mum, who was very operational. Um, and I did that for, you know, probably nearly three years. Um, and I think it would be a bit harsh to say that I didn't enjoy it. But I really, at that stage of my life, had no passion for that industry. And I, and I also, I don't really think I was cut out at that early age to be taking on quite a lot of responsibility. Um, you know, like I said, we were registered for about 230 children, which which meant that in reality, we had probably about 400, 450 children um, uh, on, on our books, basically. Um, about 70, 80 members of staff. Um, so it was quite a large organization and it was very much just a family organization. And to be sort of quite quickly propelled sort of towards the helm of that um, was, you know, something that I was really encouraged by initially that my parents, you know, had that faith and confidence in me. But I think it was all too much. And I certainly wasn't cut out at the age of 21, 22 to be taking on all that responsibility. Yeah, that is a that is a huge responsibility for someone so young and obviously knowing you reasonably well you know you i i know i know the you know the the nickel capilla of late 30s and all the you know you're very you, you know you're very switched on person and i think you're very capable of, you're, you're, you seem very well suited to having that responsibility now but knowing how i was at 21 22 i i'm not sure i i, I mean trusting me with any anything like that would have been an absolute disaster so um, you're obviously you would have been streets ahead of where I would have been, but at the same time, you're 21, 22, you, you want to, you're naturally going to want to go and make mistakes and do silly things. And, um, I said, you're not going to want to make mistakes, but you know, you're going to want to go and have fun, but and having fun and exploring and, you know, it, it involves making mistakes and taking risks. And, um, it's probably not naturally aligned with the, sa the safety and wellbeing of up to 450, uh, you know, children under the age of four or five. Yeah, and I think you're right there. I think it's, I think 
I had this crisis of confidence, basically, you know, a couple of years into that role where there wasn't a huge amount for me to do for the organization. Uh, we um, obviously with that number of children, it, 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 you, you, one could see that the business itself was successful because of the reputation that we had gained in the local community. Um, you know, we at the, the last Ofsted inspection, I think that we had when I was there, we were outstanding in all areas. Not saying that there was nothing that I could improve on and put my touch on, but it was there wasn't that. Yeah, like you say, there wasn't that that opportunity for risk taking. Um, there wasn't that necessarily opportunity to make lots of mistakes. And, you know, I felt that I needed to go on a different journey just to find out exactly what I wanted. Lo and behold, we've come now back 15, 16 years later and we're back in that early years sector. But at least now I know that this is what I want. And I've been on a path that has led me there as opposed to it just being sort of given. Yeah, I, I think then in a lot of ways that I can kind of relate to it because in the case, in, in your case at the beginning, you had you were faced with a situation where you were you were being given you know, you're being given a fully formed, um, you know, a fully formed, fully packaged business. And it's like, well, one day you're going to take you're going to take this on and we'll, we'll groom you to do that. But in a lot of ways, that's very it's quite unsatisfying mm. because you just go, right, well, well, what 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 value? What value can I add here? How do I how am I going to grow as a person if all I'm going to do is just keep this thing ticking over? And I, I actually have a bit of a parallel myself at the moment with um, you know, since my father's passing and a couple of the businesses I've become involved in, um, one of those businesses I, one of those businesses I think I'll remain involved in for the for the foreseeable. We just had a family meeting to discuss the, the future of the other one, and the other one, you know, it's a, it's a business that's abroad. I'm, uh, you know, it's it's an agricultural sector. I don't have any experience in the agricultural sector. It is run by a management team you know a bit like a bit like rainbow which is the name of the the nursery i think we're talking about here isn't it a bit like rainbow which by the way my oldest son actually was a, a attended i don't know whether it's during your family's ownership or not but um you know but it's obviously incredibly well known in in our local area um a bit like you know a bit like rainbow it it, it runs itself and yeah. there's an opportunity at the moment to for potentially for the this particular business um to be taken over by um, by the management. And for me, I, I just look at that and go, yeah, I can sit here and I can remain a shareholder and a director of this company and, you know, take dividends or whatever for for the foreseeable future. But there's a, there's a, a strong element of that, which is quite unsatisfying because like, well, I, I haven't done anything. I haven't done anything to actually earn this. And and there's a management team on the ground that, is, that are kind of sweating, you know, sweating buckets to to make this a success. It doesn't feel right to me that I continue to remain in that, it, remain in that business in over the medium to long term because it's it's not satisfying to me, and also it feels wrong to be benefiting from, you know, benefiting from the labours of other people. You know, I haven't, yeah. I haven't earned that. I don't know. I have a sense, and I think that maybe that was the mindset that you had at the time, which is like, I haven't earned this. I need to go out and and find my own way. And and I guess 
you've kind of come back to that now but anyway we'll, we'll you know you can obviously talk us through yeah no i think you're right. from there i think that idea of satisfaction is a very important one you know when i was back at the old nursery before we were 21 years of age i would see a lot of people day in day out who i worked with my colleagues and they had a huge amount of satisfaction and passion for what we did it's not to say i didn't um but certainly not as much as they did I mean, I didn't know what I wanted. I was, I was still a, ch- I was still a child, um, and I, and I hadn't been on that journey yet. Um, so but, yeah, yeah. But is it fair? Is it, is it, is it fair to say that maybe when you were there, you know, you knew, you, you left university and you went into work at uh, work at the nursery. You, you're, you're kind of doing it out of a sense of ob- expectation, obligation, and duty. Obviously, I know you're very close family, yeah. and you're a very dutiful son, um, but it's it's a very different dynamic to than someone who who who's making an active decision to want to be there um you know and, and i guess and i guess that's a key distinction yeah i think there was certainly an element of duty as well you know it, it was there was it was never an expectation you know if if i had decided even very late in the day post university that i wanted to go and do something else my parents would have been very happy you know it wasn't that you know this is what we, we have built this up for you um yeah. and in fact that happened you know when i said to them two three years down the line that i wanted to leave and i had no idea what i wanted to go and do but i just needed some time and some space to think um they were very very supportive and i think they were you know secretly quite pleased as well because they could see that I wasn't enjoying it um and you know they're emotionally intelligent people um and they could also see that I needed to sort of forge my own path make my own mistakes have my own setbacks and you know gain lots of other different experiences and and see what was right for me yeah no exactly right and and I guess you know now you look back obviously we need to talk about you know what you did what you did next but do you do you look back now and and think actually i mean it seems like an obvious it seems uh, you know i'm sort of asking something sort of almost obvious but do you look back now and think actually how much more complete you are, how much more capable and more complete you are as a result of going having those different experiences and then coming back into the sector coming back into running a, a nursery business having you know ha- having learned and experienced so much in in sectors and in businesses and, and in, in in a world which is completely unrelated uh yeah very much so. i mean you know like i said we are back where we were in the earlier sector and that experience all the lifetime ago um you know uh, anything that I was incapable or unsure of or lacked confidence in then is very different now. And it's in part to just age, you know, um, I think with age comes a lot of wisdom with experiences within different um, uh, working sectors, but also me as a person as well. You know, I've changed hugely, you know, been married for 10 years, been a father to two children um 
and like I think we'll we imagine we'll talk about now have been on this very varied career path where I feel that I've worked in some really exciting sectors within sort of education as well and that's definitely sort of built me up into this person now that's a lot more capable of running a nursery school um you know uh, managing multiple employees and um it's it's a lot easier now and it's a lot more fulfilling than it was 15 16 years ago so so let's talk about the next let's talk about the the, the next phase so you, you've you've told your parents that you you need to go and do something different so what what did you do after that well i had a, i actually had a brief stint working at a local restaurant uh, you know, there was all these things in my mind, like, what, what do I want to do? What do I think I'm good at? And one of the things was, um, I reckon I would be good in the hospitality sector. Okay. Uh, I had been over actually to the States. Um, I had some friends out there and they had friends who worked in the hospitality sector. And I'd gone out there to just speak to a few people in New York, um, not necessarily to get a job or anything like that, but just to gain a bit more of an understanding of the sector and what I would do in it if I was to do anything. Came back, essentially worked out as a waiter in a local restaurant. Uh, not for very long, for a few months. Um, really enjoyed it, but I just felt that I needed to get away. I just needed to get away, you know, three years being at university and then coming and living at home with my parents for three years um you know and because it was a family business as well you know work was not only discussed at work it was also discussed over the dinner table and you know i was still coming home and they were still involved in the nursery business and i felt just i needed to get away i needed some space I actually went to india uh spent 4 or 5 months over there traveling the country um you know it is the you know the country of my forebearers and um i decided basically to go home and yeah. to, to 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 find myself um and it was great i think i did i think a lot of people close to me at the time probably thought i came back a bit of a different person um and yeah it was a great experience came back with the thought in my mind that I would actually go back to studying would go back I would do a master's again in something that I was passionate about politics history you know had had drafted all the applications and I had a friend from school who I wasn't very close to but I think I saw on social media that he was working for uh, an MP and I contacted him and I said, how did you get that job? And he said, it's quite easy. It's not easy to get the job, but it's easy to look for roles. There's a website. It's actually called w4mp.com, workforanmp.com. I went online and there was a huge number of roles available. Um, parliamentary researchers, caseworkers. Um, I, I'm, I'm very interested in politics. Uh, I'm not very, I'm not very political in terms of, I don't think anybody could really put me on the right or the left, quite pragmatic when it comes to politics. I think naturally I'm more of a conservative voter. So I looked for the conservative MPs. I found one uh, who I knew 
of and I was interested in his politics and I applied for the role and you know two months after arriving back from India I'm sitting there at the House of Commons um, working as a parliamentary researcher for David Davis um, and then that was the next three years and, and uh, yeah. so tell us so tell us about what what that was like because you know you're in the corridors you know you're in the corridors of power David I guess that would have been when the Conservatives were in opposition or was it just kind of around the turn? It was actually the start of the coalition government. OK, so actually exposed to government. I don't know. I can't remember whether David Davis was, you know, cabinet or a minister, but highly respected parliamentarian, of course, you know, and also, you know, he had, uh, I think he was in the military as well, quite respected from his military background too. So, um must have been an incredible person to be around and you would have had access and exposure to some really um you know high profile uh people politicians you know public figures yeah. it was i mean it was quite an interesting time because it was sort of uncharted territory for british politics we hadn't had a coalition government in many many years um and david was very much a backbench mp he had uh he had been involved as uh, in in David Cameron's shadow cabinet um, as sh shadow home secretary, but he had resigned his position on a principle uh, to do with uh, detention without charge with terror suspects. Um, and that's what I was really interested in uh, with regards to him as well, because he was very much a man of principles, um, a man who enjoyed fighting the good fight um, and when I joined his office in, um, I think it was September 2010, um, it was very much a case of him reforging his career as a backbench MP um, and fighting little battles over lots of different things. And it's it's those battles that I remember, like things that people um, don't really consider to be very important things in politics, because most of us sit here and we look at the big national issues. Um, but we fought all of these small battles, mainly to do with things within our constituency, which was up in Yorkshire. And it was really exciting. Um, it involved, you know, writing letters and um, going to the House of Commons library and researching topics. So he had all the information he needed when he was speaking in debates, um, trying to table backbench legislation um, and yeah, meeting some very interesting people as well. So, I mean, it sounds like a great sounds sounds like a great role. Um, presumably, the next progression onwards, if you're working in a if you're working for someone like David Davis, is you you try and stand for election yourself. Presumably, that wasn't some that 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 was either something you didn't want to consider or wasn't felt to be an, an option for you. So, at what point did you kind of come to the realization that you needed to move on and do something else? I think you're right. There was, I mean, a, a lot of the people who were working in similar positions to me and we all worked together there. You know, most of you are in Portcullis House and every office, every room is that of another MP. Each MP's got maybe three or four researchers who work with them. And I would say probably about 75 percent of them. Then their next step is thinking, how can I get put on a party list? to be an MP, never crossed my mind for that to be the next step. Because I think 
the reason why I appreciated working for David and I enjoyed working with some of his colleagues who were like him were that they had had a really varied working background prior to being in politics. And I think that's what made them really good parliamentarians. You know, I worked with some people very closely in our office who wanted to be an MP and be put on a party list. They were in their mid 20s. They had done, I mean, with all due respect, not very much. They'd been to university and worked as a parliamentary researcher. They hadn't lived. They hadn't experienced, um, you know, working with people from different backgrounds, the types of people who we would be legislating as parliamentarians. And I became a little bit disenchanted, I think, with that atmosphere. Um, and I decided to then go and do something different as well, just go back into the normal workplace because Westminster isn't a normal workplace. Um, it's a very fun place to be, um, but yeah, there's there's nothing normal about it. You, you you're very much in that bubble. Yeah, it, it, that's what that's that's what it's called, isn't it? It's termed the Westminster bubble. Um, and I guess if you if that's where you want to be, you'll do everything you can to remain part of it. But clearly. Yeah, I, I can kind of understand where you're coming from. Um, I, around that, I mean, interestingly, uh, I guess going back now, what, two, three months ago, I had um, a guy called Mike Reader come on the podcast and he's standing for election uh, as a Labour candidate for Northampton South. And Mike is a, is a different, uh, is a, it, you know, comes from a different angle where Mike has been working as a director in the construction procurement sector for the last nearly 20 years. Um, so he he brings with him experience in uh, experience from uh, industry, and he's going to come into well, I, I as it looks most likely, he'll end up becoming a member of parliament at some point in the next eighteen months, uh, probably fifteen months, if given where we are now in the year. And you know, I, so I think he's coming from a different perspective. But I, I kind of understand where you, you know where you're coming from, which is that you know these. It is disenchanting when you see someone, someone who has no life experience, um, essentially entering Parliament, and they don't know a thing or two. I think one of the, um, I think one of the uh, recent by-elections that were held. I think the the Labour candidate that was elected. I think he's in his mid twenties, and and all he's ever done was I don't know he was a spad or something like that, and and now he's become an MP, and um, and as well-meaning and as well-intentioned as these people are. You do question how in touch they are with with the communities that they're looking to serve, especially if they don't come from that part of the world. They come from a relatively privileged background, and then they come into they come into Parliament. And if you're if you if you've gone to public school or you've been at, you know you you you've grown up in a leafy suburb and then you've come you particularly it's often the case with uh, Labour MPs, I guess you end up representing a quite a gritty uh, constituency. How in touch can you ever really be? How can it, how easily can you connect with the the needs of your constituents in that situation um, when you've never really been able to walk in in their shoes? And, and don't get me wrong, I'm sure I'm sure the vast majority of parliament parliamentarians probably face exactly the same challenges, which is that they just cannot connect with uh, connect with the constituents. You know, whereas you look at some of the classic uh, MPs, you know, and uh, you know, like you, I'm probably a more natural conservative voter than Labour, but I always really admire someone like Alan Johnson, who um, who, who was a postman. You think, well, okay, well, he, that that that's a pretty 
standard blue collar job and you're going to be and everyone interacts with a postman on a daily basis that's someone that, that is going to understand the wants and needs of, of ordinary people um whereas you know a spotty you know as someone who's you know barely out of university um probably and come from a costed privileged background background they're just not it's just not going to happen is it? it's not you're not really going to understand what your constituents need and, and look this chap may end up becoming a really really good mp and i wish him all the best but um i yeah you, you i can understand from your perspective why it's disheartening and it's disenchanting why you'd want to leave that in that that space yeah. well it's interesting actually that you mentioned alan johnson because he was somebody who i had the privilege of meeting on a number of occasions because he was a, a local constituency mp to david and we did a lot of joint work together especially you know like i said the most interesting things i did there weren't all of the big national things that happened they were like the small constituency things like we worked with alan over the fact that BAE Systems were going to close down a factory in Yorkshire. And that was a big, obviously, employer in the local area. And uh, they rescinded their decision, not because necessarily of what we did, but we were part of a movement in trying to get them to stop the closure. Um, and he, I have to say, people like him and people like David Davis are my political heroes because they I mean you, you meet a lot of people in Westminster and first of all and first and foremost they are amongst the nicest people to, that I've met you know they both come from essentially quite um, deprived working class backgrounds they have aspirations or they had aspirations within their whatever career paths they went into but when they came to Westminster yes you know they both reached cabinet positions but i don't think they necessarily had aspirations to do that that wasn't first and foremost in their minds what was first and foremost in their mind was just to help whatever community they were serving um you know and they were both mps actually who weren't from that neck of the woods mm. i mean alan johnson was i think from down the road here in slough David Davis was born in York, but grew up in South London. Um, but they were, you know, they wanted just to help the communities. And they had had, like you say, that background in whatever work that they did, which meant they had met so many people from all walks of life. Um, and you tend to find, really, if you look back in history, those those types of guys make the better politicians. Mm. I mean, you know, I know Margaret Thatcher's device is a device's fi uh, figure, but you know that she's a shopkeeper's daughter from Grantham, which means that again, it's it's not it's not the lowest of the low from a working class perspective, but it's certainly, you know, it, it's pretty still pretty humble. You know, yeah. there's lots of people. You know, there's the description of a nation of shopkeepers, etc. Um, it's certainly you know it's certainly a a background that would be in touch with uh, in touch with the the vast majority of society. So. Um, so, so I guess it's that that feeling of disconnection with with Westminster and wanting to disconnect from that Westminster bubble. What, where did that take you next? Well, I, I mean, actually, so I think I'm being a little bit disingenuous to say that I just moved away. I was disenchanted, um, but again, there was this sense of um, familial duty. Uh, quite entrepreneurial family, like you said um especially my dad you know he has done so many things in his life 
And uh, at that stage, they was uh, they had sold the nursery business, um, but he had invested in a local company, um, a restaurant and a catering service. And that small investment had quite quickly led to him taking on the whole um, party himself. And I felt that I needed to go and give him and my sister as well, who was involved in the business, um, some help and work with them. And uh, that's what I did, actually. And uh, that was, again, another two, three year segment of uh, my working life where I worked uh, again in the restaurant. Um, and, you know, all those years previously when I'd worked for a few months as a waiter, I was quite a good waiter, actually. You've got to, you know, you've got to be on your toes. You've got to have a good, uh, good short term memory. And those were quite good qualities that I possessed. Um, and it was, I wouldn't go far to say a failure, not my working in there, but the business itself. But it wasn't something that we had any background in. Um, you know, like I said, it started off as a small investment. Um, financially, uh, we we as a family didn't do very well out of it. Um, was I think it, you had the restaurant not that, until not not too long ago, actually. If, if not too long ago, no, we were fortunate to. I mean, we had been wanting to um, sell the business for some time, and we were fortunate to have sold it before COVID hit. Um, so it's good timing. Was, which was good timing, but it's a very, very tough gig. Um, what, why do you think your dad wanted to get into the space? Because I know, you know, I, I know you were over here at my house uh, only last week. We were talking about the, you know, having a, you know, having a sort of shop, you know, uh, had a shop that sold fashion, you know, fashion items, American yes, apparel, yeah, yeah. that kind of thing uh, back in the 90s. And you mentioned his his activity in the motor trade, and of course, and of course, the nursery as well, which I, I imagine would have been uh, highly lucrative. Um, was was the restaurant trade just a bit of a niche he wanted to scratch? I mean, yeah, was... yeah definitely. I mean, I think, um, you know, I think a lot of people who get involved in in, in hospitality having uh, sort of an entrepreneurial background in other things beforehand. It's probably not for the money. Uh, it's probably because um, they've got a passion for eating out in restaurants. Yeah. Um, or for drinking in bars, of which us as a family ha have had. And uh, it was probably a bit of a hobby horse initially because it was just a small investment. The person who we who person's business who we invested into, I think quite quickly got cold feet. Um, and, you know, it's the type of business that initially sustains, like all businesses do, but especially in hospitality, you know, there's financial losses. Um, I don't think the other person was sort of quite up to it and and wanted and, and couldn't sustain those financial losses. So quite quickly as a family, we took the whole thing over. Um, but yeah, it's it's a it's a real tough gig. You know, there's 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 rarely a day where you're closed. Um, you know, very little downtime. Um, and uh, yeah, you know, like I was saying to you the other day um, at your house, um, these small family-run restaurants, the ones that survive, uh, are are mainly the ones where the the owners can cook and the owners can go in the kitchen. Um, of which we couldn't 
you know, not to the level that you need to to, to, to sustain a restaurant. Um, and that's quite difficult, you know, you know, wake up every morning and, uh, you know, somebody hasn't showed up in the kitchen or a chef downs his tools because he's had a spat with the kitchen porter. And um, yeah, it's, it's a tricky business to be involved in. But now, actually, and, and, you know, there were times when it was a nightmare. But now, despite all of the financial losses, massive learning curve. Um, yeah, because I guess even if you, even if you, as a family, you sustained, uh, you know, a bit of a financial hit, you know, you obviously you you'd done reasonably well out of the uh, out of the nursery, so it was, maybe you took a chunk out of uh, out of those proceeds. But I, I mean, I I always like it. So I had a I made a property investment going back twelve years as a mixed use building. Um, it's it was building in Essex. It was the first after I start got into business with my father-in-law was the first investment that I made and it was a vacant Halifax building society with four flats above it but I saw that there was some potential to add some value to it um, out the back effectively converting what were the old staff toilets into a, a couple of a couple of additional flats we only ended up getting planning for one more um, but I think in the end you know if you think about it, it cost your mind back buying a building like that in 2011 the, the market was so depressed that you should have made any fool could have made money out out of investment like that but the particular circumstances around that were were such that um probably overpaid a little bit for it um and you know and it it took a while for the market to the market to recover and so we, we probably broke even on on the investment net net maybe made a bit maybe made a bit of profit but like compared to the other investments that we made um you know during that period and subsequently um it was probably quite disappointing but in a funny way the you know the opportunity cost financially was probably paid for by the learning experiences and the lessons that we learned along the way um i mean some of which is don't don't ever buy retail property now i know that there'll be listeners um, uh, who will say, who will say, well, yeah, you, you don't go and buy any, any retail property because I'm going to buy it because I know what I'm doing and I, I can make money out of that. And to be fair, good luck to them. But I, the key, you know, there were just so many lessons that I learned as a result of that. And the other thing that was also helped is it was the kind of the buy in and develop credibility locally so that people would start offering us deals. And, you know, we get further, further, further towards the front of the queue when it came to new opportunities. So that was that was probably beneficial. But do you, do you sort of see your your family's experience and your experience in the restaurant business as maybe it wasn't particularly a great result financially, but actually the lessons that you learned from it are probably worth ten times what what it cost you um, in you know from a financial perspective? Yeah, I mean, obviously I can't speak for for the for the rest of them, but yeah, I think you know in my in my older age I've become a lot more philosophical now. And, you know, whatever, whatever has been has been. And you need to look at, you know, like you say, you need to look at the positives. Um, yeah, there were large financial losses. But if that experience had never happened, you know, that's what my dad says now. If that experience had never happened, maybe we wouldn't be back where we're supposed to be in the mm. earlier sector. You know, um, and personally, and I think I probably speak for my sister as well, because both of us did similar roles within it. 
I think it was the it was where we forged, you know, that hard work ethic, basically, because it is a hard business to be involved in. You know, you get there at seven o'clock in the morning because you're doing breakfasts and you're still there till 11, 12 o'clock at night and you've got to reopen the next morning and the kitchen porter hasn't turned up. So you spend six hours in the kitchen washing dishes, you know, and that's what we did. We did. Ev we had to try and do everything because if you don't. Um, you know, muck in, then you're not going to be able to offer that product to your to your customers like you, you usually should do. We we talk. I know we've we've talked about this place before, but there's you you'll obviously we both know uh, there's a, a bistro uh, in in a place called Virginia Water uh, locally that's run by a couple. I'm going to say that they're now. Well, at least the the gentleman is now in his seventies. I'm not sure about the lady, but I would say that they're probably not that far apart in age. And we we both have different experiences or different views of this place. I'm a bit negative on it because I I feel like that the attitude of the owners is that they you can just see it written on their faces that they just don't want to be there. Um, and I, I agree with you. Like I don't think I could ever go into the restaurant business because I just can see how difficult it is and it's it's not you know it, it is not that easy to make a lot of money mm -hmm. uh, out of the restaurant business now don't get me wrong there are plenty of restaurant businesses that make money that do make money that successfully but i look at a, but i look at that couple and and i and i just say think to myself you just you, why are you doing this to yourselves you know you because it's just such hard work and it's one thing doing it you know, I mean, I know, you know, your your dad is a good 10, 15 years younger than them. Um, and he had the benefit of you guys helping, uh, helping out too. Whereas this couple doesn't have that. You know, I know that they've got children, but the, the, their children aren't in the business. Yeah. It's, it's like, why would you, why keep, why, why do you keep doing this to yourself? Yeah. Like, what, I think that was, is, there were, there were moments where we were, th we were thinking, you know, why are we, why are we flogging this dead horse? Um, but I think that's, that's where like my dad, he, he wanted to try and make as much of a success out of it as he could. So at least it was in a marketable position where we could sell it. And I think that's what essentially happened. Um, but yeah, it's tough. It's, and you've got to put that brave face on all the time. So, you know, you, you've you've told me about that couple and I, I know that place. Well, that's where it actually worked in my early 20s. Yeah. And um, you've got to put that brave face on, you know, if your chef hasn't turned up and if you've been with, you know, restaurant customers, you know, you've got some who are lovely, some who are incredibly rude some who are telling you how you should run your business because they obviously know how to run it better than you do it's 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 from a even from an emotional perspective it's very draining um and my hats go off and that's why i think that's probably why i'm a really good customer in restaurants you know my wife and i will go out for a meal and it will take time for our food to arrive I very, very rarely complain about anything in restaurants. And when I do, I do it in the most polite manner possible because I know that most of the time they're not doing it on purpose. They're just having a bad day. And 
I can tell why they're having a bad day because I'm looking at the floor of the restaurant and I realize there's not enough people working that there should be. And that's not because necessarily they might have not been employed. It's because people haven't turned up to, to work because a lot of people in the hospitality industry are quite flaky. Yeah. Um, and yeah, so it's it, it's tough. And my hats go off to them, especially after the, the last few years that they've had. Do you think that now in your current role, your experience in the hospitality industry makes you a better manager as a consequence of uh, of that? You know, like you talk about people being flaky, you know, you're, you're in, the, in within the nursery industry, you know, you also have that, you, you know, you we will talk, we'll obviously get on yeah. to like challenge, challenges and things like that, you know, biggest challenges. and. I, I mean, I already know, but it, which is it stuff. I mean, it's a very common theme anyway with everyone I, I ask. But I think, especially in your sector, staffing is, and I, and I knowing other people, other business owners and operators in your sector, um, a little bit as well. I, I know one hundred percent the biggest issue is staffing. When you're, you know, and so and and staff can be flaky, particularly in your sector. Do you think that uh, your current sector in the nursery sector? Do Do you think though that your experience managing people in the restaurant business means you're incredibly well equipped to handle and manage that that side of things yeah i think definitely i think the um the, the the number one lesson that i learned from the restaurant experience that has served me well now is that you can't do everything all the time but you need to be able you need to be capable of doing almost everything. And by that, what I mean to say is, is that if people don't turn up to work in our industry now, in, in, in the nursery um, that we have, then I will quite happily do your job. I'm capable of doing your job. I, I can do it. The place needs to open in the mornings, needs to shut in the evenings. The children, the families that we serve need to get the same experience day in, day out. Um, and in the restaurant sector, that was very difficult because I could work the floor and I could work as a kitchen porter, but I couldn't cook. Right. You know, you know, and 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 that's that's the that's the engine room of 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 the restaurant. And if that's not working, then nothing's working. And there's nothing that you can do to compensate for that. Yeah. Um, and certainly now, you know, we're at the stage where and, and I think because we'll talk about it now, what I did post restaurant has made me a lot more capable uh, you know of managing within the sector that we're in so so let's let's move on to that if if yeah. that's a good a good opportunity so um at what point did you so you know sort of to fast forward slightly you you ended up going into the teaching sector yeah um what prompted that um uh, and then talk us through talk us through that 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 part of the journey well I think what prompted it is that actually we got to the stage in the in the restaurant sector where my dad said we're going to close. We're going to close, can't carry on sustaining these losses. Um there was no there was no buyer for it, but we're going to close. We're still going to market it and try and sell it. I had just got married and I thought, God, Nick, what are you going to do now? Like, you know, I'm glad that we're closing the restaurant. I'm glad that we're not flogging this dead horse anymore. But what are you going to do? You're going to go back to Parliament. You're going to, but then you're going to be back at square one again, doing something that you, you you're hugely passionate about, but you weren't enjoying completely. 
and teaching was just an idea that I had. I thought, you know, maybe you'd be a good teacher. Um, and I worked in some schools getting a little bit of teach, not teaching experience, but teaching assistant experience and thought I quite like this. These are quite um, interesting environments to be in. Um, but then I thought I can't go back to university. You know, I'm, I'm, I've just got married. You know, we want to have children. And there's this scheme in this country called Teach First. Um, and it's based upon an American scheme called Teach for America. Um, it was started up by a guy probably about 15 years ago now. Um, he worked at McKinsey. He went on a sabbatical to do a project and he realized that there's these schools in America in deprived areas that have got very poor educational outcomes. Uh, teachers don't want to go and work there. Um, there aren't many teachers anyway because nobody really wants to go in the teaching profession. Um, so why don't we take graduates who went to go and do other things and encourage them to go and teach on a short term basis? So this scheme in this country, um, you go straight into the classroom on day one. You get paid from day one. You teach a class from day one. But alongside that, um, Teach First also pays for you to do your teaching qualification and get PGCE. Um, so I applied. Um, it's not many people uh, get selected. I think in the cohort that I joined in, I think only there was about a 7% success rate. Um, and I wanted to join as a history teacher. I think that was the idea as well. You know, I've got this passion for history and politics. And they said, uh, no, we want you, but we don't want you as a history teacher. We think you'd be good as a primary school teacher. Right. OK. And I thought, what? <laughs> I'm not very good with young kids. Um, so, so you had you had visions that you'd be, you know, lecturing six formers and, yes. you know, talking about the things that you were interested in. And no, 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 you're going to get to um, teach uh, five year olds how to read and write. Yeah, I thought, that, you know, I, I, I've arrived here. I'm going to be teaching A level history students about you know, the the origins of the Second World War. And I'll have another <laughs> politics class where I'll be teaching them about different forms of government. Um, and I'll be able to talk about my experience of working in Westminster and everything like that. But instead, I'll be <laughs> teaching five year olds how to read and uh, to do, you know, rudimentary mathematics. But because I knew that they only accept such a small number of people, and I knew that most of the people joining were graduates who were just joining from university, from very good universities, having done law degrees at Oxford, having done PPE at Durham and stuff. I said, I've got to do this. I've got to do it. You know, you know let's just see what it's, what it's going to be like. Um, and I joined. And the thing about Teach First is you have to do it for two years. You have to teach for two years in order to um complete their leadership program get your qualifications and whatnot um and also you have to work in schools in not very nice areas that's the whole point yeah. so all of their schools or it's what it used to be like anyway had to be in an area with of with a certain type of idaki score and an idaki score is a score on an on an on a deprivation index 
Um, and I think the closer you are to zero, the better. So I think you and I live in the same area and we're probably very fortunate to say that our score in this area is quite close to zero. Mm -hmm. I taught in a school only 10 miles down the road um, and they had a score of about 0 0.8. Um, it was the one of the most deprived wards in the country in the top 10% most deprived wards in the country. You know, a multitude of problems. Um, you know, um, high so this was in this was in Slough, was it? This was in Slough. Yeah. Uh, high unemployment, high crime close by to the school, um, drugs, addiction problems. Um, and I taught in that school for two years and I had a great time. Um, I worked with some incredibly interesting and hardworking people. I had some real characters in my classroom, um, you know, uh, children who were born in refugee camps in Lebanon and had come over here because of the Syrian civil war. Um, and yeah, it was it was really interesting. And I and finally I found my niche. And I thought this is where I'm meant to be. I'm meant to work in education. I'm good at it. I enjoy it. I get stressed by it, but I I'm uh, I like that stress, um, and uh, yeah, it was it was great, and uh, I haven't really looked back because I'm still, even though I'm not teaching in in the classroom on a day to day basis, I'm still um, well now, ten years later, you know, still working in the education sector. I mean, I mean that's. that's that's great. I mean, it really, it, it's it's really great to see. I, I I always pleased when when people find find their vocation. You know, it's because I mean, as 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 we know, as you know from private conversations, I'm very passionate about work. Um, but you know, there's there's uh, there's two. You know, you sort of I distinguish it between a job and a career. I mean, in the career, maybe going a bit uh, is it's probably underplays it as well, which is that. You know, you if you find something that gives you a sense of purpose, it's not really work. It's it, it's it's part of your life and an important part of your life. And it feels to me like that's this is something that the, being in the education sector feels like an important part of your life now, um, and it, and it gives you meaning and purpose. Um, and I, and, it, and in lots of ways, um, so many people, so many people who lack meaning and purpose, it, a lot of it's to do with the fact that they're they're how they spend their days lacks meaning and purpose or, or is not meaningful to them um you know if, if i know you like uh, jordan peterson as well jordan b peterson and he has one of his in 12, 12 rules for life he talks about doing what's meaningful not what's expedient and a lot i think a lot of uh, a lot of people today and, and probably going back in time of course out of necessity do what's expedient, not necessarily what's meaningful and gives them purpose. And so that's that's really great. And I think actually when you when one one of the first times we met, it was probably going back what four years now, more than four years, probably four and a half years. I think you were still were you still working in in the in the school at I about four have, and a half years yeah, ago? Yeah, I would have been. So I, I worked for two years in that in that initial school in Slough. And that was very much in the mainstream sector. Um so even though it was in a school in a very deprived area, it was a mainstream state school. Um, 
after those two years, I decided, and this is where I was when I think I first met you, I decided I wanted a bit of a varied experience. I wanted to maybe go and work in a different school, um, maybe a different type of school. And I landed in another school in Slough um, that was a very specialist facility. There's not a huge number of them in the country for children with um, social, emotional and behavioural problems. Um, a school based like for like kids who are excluded from other from other schools, that kind of thing. Yeah, uh, that's yeah. that's that's how I remember it, actually. Yeah. Yeah. So if I thought that the, f that the first school that I worked in was tough, this was even tougher, but it was really enjoyable. Every day was 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 a blast, basically. And but it was still primary or you do or still you primary, still primary. So still children from the age of five to 11, very small class sizes, only a maximum of six in a class. Very intense uh, staff to child ratio. So if I was teaching a class of six children, there would be two other adults in the classroom as well. Wow. And, and, and is, is that because the risk of of violence, basically? Yeah, that's that's yeah. what I was thinking. Is that basically just because at any one time you almost need a referee, someone to stand in between, like a sort of so essentially a two to one ratio. Yes. Wow. Wow. It was. It was actually when I first started working there. Um, it was. I laugh about it, and because and I think the reason I loved it as well, working in these types of schools was because you know what my sense of humour is like, yeah. right? <laughs> I think it'd probably be best described as, I don't know, it's a bit, sometimes a bit crude and it's a bit gallows humour. Yeah. And those are the types of people that you work with when you're working in these schools. You know, that when I first described this school to my wife, right, who's a doctor, she said, what is it like? She said, I said, I can only describe it. The only similar place I've been to like this is like um, a labour ward, a maternity labour ward. And she said, why do you say that? And I said, because all you can hear down the corridor are screams. <laughs> wow. And, but it was, it was, you know, one moment you're trying to teach a class of seven-year-olds, um, I don't know, about... I saw some different types of triangles in a maths lesson. The next moment, somebody's thrown a chair at you. And 10 minutes later, they're standing next to you, hugging you <laughs> while you continue the lesson. It's, um, these, these, were, these, wow. were these were children who had. So out of the six children in your class, some of them might have just been brought up within environments where there was just a lot of crap going on at home. Yeah. You know, parents had addiction issues. One of the parents might have been in prison. There were, uh, in many cases, there was elements of abuse. There were children that were born to mothers who were drug addicts while the children were born. So there were things that were passed through the system. There were also some children there who were brought up in quite stable environments, but were um, uh, had behavioural issues for for because there were there were cognitive issues going on. So there was there was loads of different types of children, but essentially, I loved being with them. There was not one child that I taught 
in those schools that I disliked. In fact, the children with most of the issues and the children who gave you more of a runaround, ironically, you tended to to to, to grow and a, a greater bond with them. Yeah, I, I guess because you, you you probably naturally have to invest more time and effort in into in bringing them around, and that that helps build and develop a bond between you. Um, I, I guess that there's I can imagine that when you have a positive impact in these particular children's lives, especially because you have such small, a small class size. Um, the impact that you're able to affect on an, any individual child is so outsized than if you were teaching a, a, a class of 20 or 30. So presumably when you, you know, when when one of the children maybe grasped a, a concept that they'd been struggling with or I don't know, like you said, that they you, you just get a hug from them or whatever. Yeah, it's probably magnifies the the satisfaction um that you would have got from from the role um so i can understand why it would be very feel very fulfilling um so what what led you out of out of that part of of, of the education sector and and then i guess leading into the you know how did how did we how did you end up end up back in the nursery sector so um both my sister also became a school teacher at the same time. We both qualified at the same time and we both taught for about six years. And then our dad said to us, who was now in a stage of sort of semi-retirement where the restaurant had reopened, but uh, he was a bit more hands off because there were people running it reasonably well and it was getting to that stage where we were about to sell it. And he said to uh, Isha, my sister and I, would you like to carry on teaching? Uh, do you consider yourself sort of moving up the, the ladder in that sector? Or should we all go back into early years together? Because, you know, you, you know, you two have now forged this passion for education. And if you want to carry on teaching, that's great. And we're, we're very supportive and behind you. Um, but if we go back into early years, you could merge that passion for education like your mother had with the, with the nursery with, um, you know, the sense of business as well and building um, something up yourself. Um, and that's what we did. And we made the decision to say, yeah, we're going to leave our teaching roles and we will find a good site to open up a, a nursery school. Um, and it took some time to, to find that that site. Um, we actually ended up on the south coast of England because we, we found something perfect there. Um, and how, how come you chose that particular part of the world? Obviously, being in and around kind of northwest Surrey area yeah. for most of your lives. Um, what what prompted that move? Was that because it was an area that your parents had identified as where they might like to kind of settle down? in that sort of later phase of their lives or, or or was it just by pure chance? It was uh, really pure chance. So locally to where we live here, um, we really, it was quite difficult to find sites. Uh, I mean, you're in the property sector. We found a couple of sites and we were very, very close to completing on them um, and, and opening a nursery there, but they, they ended up 
going to residential uh, as residential properties. Um, and somebody within the nursery sector said to us, there's a site down in Christchurch near Bournemouth. Be perfect for a nursery school. And our first thought was Christchurch, you know, it's 90 minutes away. And, you know, we live here, Surrey, Berkshire area. But we went to go and have a look. And when we went there, we thought, yeah, it would be perfect for a nursery, but it's far from home. There, it's not the type of business that you can run from afar, basically. And even though I'm still afar now, I'm I'm there three, four days a week on site. Um, but then we thought about it a lot more. And my parents had wanted to downsize uh, from where they lived locally to me here in Berkshire. And they said, quite a nice area, you know, quite fancy living by the sea. And that's what happened. So we decided let's take a punt. And it was a good punt to take. Um, it was sort of the wrong time in many respects because we didn't know that round the corner um, we would be hit by a pandemic, um, which delayed our opening and also was quite debilitating for the first, I'd probably say, year and a half of the business. Um, but you know, we've nearly been open three years now and touch wood, it's a it's a very successful nursery and built up a very good reputation in the local area. So just let's, for those who don't know what what's involved in, you know, setting up an, uh, a children's nursery like so. Can you talk can you talk uh, people through the just, you know, at a high level, the, the process, because, you know, obviously we've I've been following the 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 progress. Uh, the the nursery is called Twynham House, isn't it? Yeah. Um, I've been following it obviously because you give us regular updates uh, in over WhatsApp and 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 whatnot. But you know, when when did you when you know? You, I think you leased the property. You don't own you don't you don't own the freehold. Do you? Yes, yes, we lease the property. Yeah. So so when did you take? You know, when did you you know when did you complete the lease? And then what was the the process in terms of fitting out and and getting your you know the offstead you know your you know your, yep. your authorization to to trade and and things like that what what does what did that process look like so i think we took the lease on probably in october november of 2019 um it required a lot of uh refurbishment work it, it had been a, an, an english language school there are a lot of foreign students who go to that part of the world to to learn english um, but it seemed like it hadn't been touched in about 20 years. So obviously you need to make it a nice, spacious and safe environment. Then COVID hit and that delayed the process uh, of opening. And once your environment is set, then you can apply to Ofsted for it to be a nursery setting. Um, we also had to apply to be a new provider. So we applied to be a new provider and to uh, add a setting onto our provision, basically. Ofsted come for a registration visit. Um, they meet with somebody called the nominated individual, who is me, and discuss my suitability to be a nominated individual. Do I know what it takes to run a nursery school? They ask me about the early years foundation status, which is basically the curriculum that underpins um, zero to five education in the UK. Um, 
asked lots of questions about regulations to do with staff and training and health and safety and safeguarding. And then you get your registration certificate and you're able to start. Um, and then became the process of employing staff, of which we did sort of concurrently with the registration process. And then you advertise and wait for the children to arrive. And with us in September 2020, the children did not arrive. And that is not unusual because you are a new setting. And now people would ask me and say, yeah, you were a new setting, but you had such a good history with Rainbow Nursery. But history doesn't travel um, 80, 90 miles down the road. And it took time to build up that reputation. Um, and it was difficult to build the reputation because of COVID. You know, working from home really hit us during those early days. Um, because mum and dad are working from home. What do we need to pay a nursery operator for when little Johnny and Jemima can stay stay at home, basically? Exactly. Um, especially with, you know, seems like a simple point to make. But if you've got quite a young child, so like a baby or a toddler who's still sleeping for up to three hours in the middle of the day, then you can maybe get your work done when they're asleep play with them a bit in the morning, a little bit more in the afternoon, do a little bit of work while they, after they've gone to bed at six o'clock in the evening. You don't need that nursery care mm. because you're, you're not going to work. Working from home doesn't work very well, actually, with, with young, especially those young children for nursery schools. Um, and once that started to lift, then we saw the, 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 the children come. Was, was there... Um... You know, when that January lockdown kicked in, was that a, was that a bit of a tipping point in terms of in, in terms of um, in terms of seeing fresh numbers coming in or, or, or did that come later? Uh, yeah, I think that that January 2021, wasn't it? Um, yeah. yeah, I think we know, I think from September 2020 to what uh, from when we opened. Uh, to May 2021. We enrolled probably 15 children and that out, I mean, out of a capacity of what? Well, on a daily basis, we can have uh, about 85 children on the premises at any one time. Yeah. Normally with a, a nursery that's registered for 85 children, you have maybe about 200 children on roll with you because they do different sessions, part timers, yeah. full timers. So we had enrolled 15 children out of probably about 200. And, you know, yeah, we knew that we were opening up a, a new setting and it would take time to build up the reputation. But you can't um, you can't sustain the business with with such a low level of children. Um, and but then after that, when things started to open up a lot more, people started to go back to the office Um the children, a, a small trickle, you know, turned into a bit of a flood, really. Um, and and now looking, and now we're looking back at, well, I said looking back, but now, and, and so how long did it take you to kind of get to close to capacity? Uh, from opening, say, uh, a, a year and a half to two years, yeah. Yeah, that, which is interesting, actually, because the 
the the the operators that I speak to, I and mean, I, I particularly speak to um, specialist property agents. So some of my listeners, some of the listeners will know that I I I've recently invested in a um, invested in a nursery property investment, and I'm actively working with a number of nursery operators to help them grow their grow and expand their portfolios. And so I, I can certainly uh, can certainly confirm what Nick's saying, which is that. It's very hard to find suitable premises for uh, for nurse for nurseries unless they are um, unless there are particular constraints around the properties which would prevent them from going to residential uh, conversions, for example. It, I think it also may help now for the, for the foreseeable that it you know that finance you know the demand for finished residential product is a little bit more more muted, but um, notwithstanding that, there's still a lot of uh, a lot of competition for it, but um a lot of a lot of operators are reluctant to go into fresh sites because they don't want to uh, because of what nick's talking about which is it takes it's they, they're telling me that it takes about two years to get fully up to speed and they uh, you know an operator would much rather acquire another another nursery where they, they effectively pay you know pay a price to buy the nursery but the day that they the, the day that they go in they're the the their work you know they're cash flowing um in, in a positive way um so yeah that that sort of chimes with with, with you know, what, Mike, I, what that, I understand that was so that was that was an option for us as well you know going back into the sector uh, do we start up on our own with a fresh site or do we uh do we get involved with a with a with a running business already and i think the thing is with us is that Obviously, making money is important at the end of the day. You have to make money and, and make it worthwhile. But we, when I say that we are owner operators, there is a real emphasis on that word operator. Um, Isha, my sister, my parents as well, but they, it's not that they've taken a back step, a bit, but I think Isha and I have got more of a, a foot in, in what we're doing at the moment. We are, really passionate about everything to do with the nursery everything you know we we know everything that's going on in fact even at this stage at this at this moment we don't have a nursery manager because our last manager left us and Isha and I are co-managing the setting at the moment so every detail everything to do with every child every family um you know we know about um we make decisions on and getting involved in an already running business was always going to be tricky because we wanted to impart our ethos on the setting from from day one and it's quite difficult to do that when you've already got a setting that's already been running for a while do you think also though because going back to very much very much the beginning of the conversation around if you bought something do you do you do you experience a similar analog to what you experienced when you uh, when you stepped into Rainbow, age twenty-one, where you're almost being given something, whereas now you you have, it's more difficult, but it's more satisfying because you've had to build something from nothing, yeah. rather than just taking something over and just keeping it ticking over. No, exactly. I think that you know, obviously, that element of satisfaction that I have sitting here today would have never been there. Um, and I think like it's probably the same in all other businesses. I don't know a lot about other businesses, but certainly within the nursery sector, you know, if, if you were in, if you got involved in a already running setting, 
it's quite difficult to change people's opinions about certain things. You know, we've got our own ethos about the policies and about the procedures and about the way that we interact with parents and families, the way that we do things. Um, you know, we, we, we have our Bible, basically, our Twynham House Bible. Um, and it essentially comes really from here, from our hearts and about what we believe it, it, it to be to be educators. I guess as well, um, if you go, it's probably like trying to turn an oil tanker from a cultural perspective. And you you clearly have really good on, uh, idea as a family as to how a uh, as to how a nursery should run, and you know the the culture and the ethos that's there. Trying to change that culture, stepping into an already operational um, nursery will be very difficult. It'll be like it will yeah. be like turning trying to turn an oil tanker. Um, and it, and in many ways actually could be more difficult is that is that shift in culture yeah. could be more difficult than actually starting with a fresh slate and and moving you know and, and moving things on from there so i guess you you're now you, you're now in the process of getting your second site set up are you renting is that also going to be another rental are you, are you yes renting it is. As yeah well? it's the uh the, the i mean ideally what we'd like to do is I, I know in the nursery sector a lot of providers like to lease properties i think we would very much like to have both as freehold properties in the future um like we did previously with with rainbow um but at the moment they're both being leased yeah yeah i i guess from a I guess to make your money go further, it's a lot easier to do that on a leased basis than if you're doing it on a on a freehold basis. I I talk to, I do some consultancy work for some people who who have um kind of I guess a serviced office business, and they seem determined to do it on a on a freehold basis. But I I sort of say I do say to them, and they, I think they're aware of it that you know the 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 fastest way to scale that business is is not going to be to try and do it. On a freehold basis, I, I guess it really depends. I, I guess though a lot of it also depends on on your motivations and what uh, and what your aspirations are. Because once once you've got Limington site set up, is the aspiration to 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 grow, you know, to grow to five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, twenty, fifty sites, or do you have a or, or are you more interested in being more boutiquey um, in in terms of your medium to long term plans? Yeah, I mean. It's quite difficult. I really haven't thought that far. I mean, we, yeah, I think that idea about being a bit boutique is actually quite a pertinent one because I I don't want to talk about other providers. I don't know other providers. My children went to Rainbow where, you know, same with your 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 eldest son, the, the previous nursery that we had. And that's the only nursery that I have ever known apart from our own now. And, um, but, we like the idea about family run individual nursery schools and even though we're opening up a second one we want that same feeling and that same ethos to permeate there as well that doesn't mean that there can't be six seven eight nine of them but i think each one has to retain that singularity if you know what i mean yeah and, you know, it, there's no harm in people knowing that they're part of a wider group, but they are individual entities um, where 
you know, the staff know those parents and you have people who work on the premises. Enrollments are done on the premises and not via some sort of cloud, provider cloud type thing. And I think yeah. that's very important in the nursery sector. And I think that's, yeah. that's why maybe some other bigger providers have sometimes got a bit of a bad name because, like I said, I don't want to talk harshly about them, but families and children are often treated as numbers and not not as yeah. names. The the thing that the thing that, that that I was dwelling on when we you know just you know going back a, a little bit before in the conversation is obviously you know you talk about being hands on you know that the having that personal touch, not having a manager, you know everything's very much done by you and your sister. Um, the the, the thing that I was thinking about is that's great, but it, it's it's very difficult to scale that. Yes. And yeah. so um, and, and so it, it, it's it's it strikes me that you're not against the idea of of having some sort of scale, but you'll probably need to grow more slowly to ensure that the the people, the management have got uh, the management of this of the sites that you and Isha are not at will approach things with that same level of personal touch and detail that that you do um i do uh, just saying that i i it, it may be one of the thoughts that occurred to me is that have you have you contemplated the idea that as you bring on particular center managers would you be open to cutting them into the the equity or some sort of profit share of those particular sites or or would you prefer to keep that very much within the family I think we would probably prefer to keep that within the family. I mean, it's certainly something that you, you're not wholeheartedly against, um, but it's also finding people as well who 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 would even want to do that. And I, I, I'm not I'm not entirely sure that within within this sector um, that there maybe be a lot of them around. Yeah, I, I think there's a lot of there are some industries where you know pe people who are oper pe operational people. Are also entrepreneurial. I mean, you know, within the property sector or the built environment sector, we think I think about um, valuation surveyors, and I think about mon uh, you know quantity surveyors, project monitoring surveyors, or, or or outside of that, even say accountants, for example. Um, the the nature of those the, the nature of those roles tends to attract people who are a little bit more um, introverted and very yeah. detail oriented, but. You know to be a good entrepreneur you need to be you know you need to be able to think you know take the blinkers off be a salesperson be a bit more uh gregarious and and, and put yourself out there i think i guess if if someone wants to be an educator their their first priority is being a good educator yeah and the business part may not may not naturally may not come naturally to them so i i kind of understand why that will to find the the people where that you'd have that alignment would be very difficult to source. Yes, yeah. Um, and you know, I guess going going forwards, you know, knowing that there's a lot of money that's going, there's a lot of money going into the the, the early sector now. Um, there's a lot of private equity money. There are, um, you know, big operators. Um, you know. You, the likes of your, your busy bees and, and and family and and all the rest of it, um, many of whom are backed by private equity as well, and they're looking to consolidate in the industry. 
you know, let's say fast forward for three, four years time, five years time, you've got half a dozen sites. How, how are you going to approach the conversation when inevitably one of them turns around, turns around to you and goes, Nickel, Isha, here's a, here's a really big check, life changing yeah. money. Um, I want to buy you. I, I want to buy or we want to buy your sites. That conversation comes around and as, as it probably inevitably will do, how are you going to approach that when when it comes? Yeah. Um, yeah, there's a, there's so that everything that I've talked about to you, there's a feeling that if that was to happen, there's a feeling like you're selling out. Yeah. Like you're selling out. How on earth would these half a dozen nursery schools maintain that family ethos and singularity if they're being bought out by a big provider um yeah i don't know to be honest i don't know um well let me ask you let me ask a question a different way or let me ask a, a slightly different question so turn it around maybe and just say what a, what about if, if a private equity company comes to you and says look we love what you've done here we want to back you to go and roll this roll this format out regionally or nationally was that something you know you effectively oh, yeah. can definitely def definitely be interested in that yeah definitely be interested in that i think what the last three years have taught us here is that financially it's been very very tricky for us to get any assistance yeah you know in terms of you know uh funding from the banks and stuff you know we even though we had this history beforehand for 20 odd years with Rainbow, highly lucrative organization where we had great um, relationships with the banks and great backing from the banks. You know, we were nobodies starting up again and it's been very, very tricky, but we have a very strong confidence and positivity in what we're doing. And certainly, if something like that was to happen, we would be we'd be very interested. Well, I've, I've no doubt that there would there'd be even now there'd probably be people lining up to want to talk to you from, you know, from the from the sector or people who back operators in the sector without question. So um, I'm sure if some of them are listening, they they will no doubt uh, get in touch. Um, in terms of challenges, you know, I, I sort of touched on it, but presumably number one challenge that you've got. Uh, you know going you know I guess if we go back two years maybe the number one challenge was actually filling up the places but presumably the number one challenge that you experience right now is staff-led yeah we we, uh, we are actually personally quite fortunate in the sector um, there are quite a lot of staffing and workforce issues I think during the pandemic a lot of people left the industry it's not necessarily a very highly paid um, in industry to work, work, work in. And when some nursery schools are basically competing with other working sectors who are paying, paying more money, it's quite difficult. Um, and it's a tough job to do. Um, we're quite fortunate that we have a team now of about 30 odd people were very passionate about early years education. They see it as a vocation and they see it as a career. And we feel as leadership that we treat them in that way. We 
don't want people to work for us just to fill the ratios so we can accept more children. We want people to work with us because they believe in our ethos. They have a passion for education. They want to build that career and we treat them accordingly. You know, we do we do little things in our in our um, organization that is, well, quite unheard of within the sector. And it means it costs us a little bit more money, um, but it means that the workforce and the team are happy um, and they feel comfortable and they want to move forward with us. Yeah, I mean, what I what I understand um, from, I suppose, your peers in the industry is that, especially the ones I talk to about expansions, they, they don't really ever want to be too far from other centres because they have to effectively cannibalise staff from other centres yeah. because they inevitably have people no showing, you know, on a regular basis in the workplace and you know and you obviously need to have a minimum staff count to yes. meet your you know the the regulatory uh requirements um you know i i guess uh, do you see any particular opportunities coming up in the next 18 months i guess aside from expansion is, is there any other things that that you're excited about um uh, I, I think one of the big opportunities that everyone sees in the sector is this uh new funding that yeah. the government is is going to be making within the sector, you know, up until now, or even currently now, the uh, generally the only people who um, only children who receive government subsidy or funding are three and four year old children. Yeah. Um, which uh, really helps in reducing parents nursery bills at the end of the month. Um, uh, and the government is now expanding that pretty much to all children um and so by i think september of next year uh children age one to five are going to be subsidized by the government it's going to cost them a lot of money i mean i don't know what the figures suggest but i think it means that lots more parents who would have never considered nursery education uh, would be more forthcoming because it would be more affordable and those parents who already put their children in nursery schools may not be doing it for two or three days a week, but maybe doing it for four or five days a week. You know, grandparents might be getting more of a break now. Yeah, I, I guess it, I guess where you're already at capacity, that's one thing. It's uh, but it, but I, I guess when you're opening up a new site, it, it probably means that your fill up rate will be can be a lot faster. So, yeah probably encourage you it will encourage you and other operators to set up new centers um you know a bit more speculatively than than you would otherwise yeah certainly and i think even at our current site at the moment twynham house in christchurch you know when i you know i uh, primarily deal with the enrollments that come through with our nursery administrator there and quite often we're saying it'd be so great if we could expand this site in, in, and, and there are some opportunities, a site that we've actually got, but, you know, even if we were to have an adjoining site on the same road, there are a couple of buildings close by to us that would be perfect to be part of our nursery school. It just means that we wouldn't have to disappoint so many parents because, I mean, right now we're at the stage and been unimaginable uh, 18 months, two years ago. But we're at a similar stage we were with Rainbow, where most of our babies are being enrolled before they're born. 
Um, you know, my mum used to joke that with Rainbow, parents who were already sending children to the nursery would ask her, um, you, you know, or say to her, you tell me when I should conceive in order <laughs> to get the place. But it, it, it's really, I mean, it's it's difficult to tell parents now who ring up and say, because quite often they say, you know, I've got a one-year-old baby and I'd like to put them in nursery for a few days a week. And you know already in your mind, I don't have the space. You ask for the birth date of the baby so that you can look at the fact that you've got space for that child all the way through their nursery journey. You look at the future registers and you disappoint them by saying, and they're a bit perplexed because a lot of them think I started quite early to look for a place. And then you say to them that, you know, most of the babies are, are now enrolled before they're born. Nuts. Absolutely nuts. Um, I mean, what, one of the things that um, it, at the property we just bought and talking to the operator there, which is uh, a company called Toad Hall, the, one of their reluctance to try and, you know, because there's an opportunity to redevelop the site. Um, and expand the, the building footprint but the reluctance that they have is that if they do that they if, they if they do that within the existing building it reduces the capacity it's not the biggest nursery anyway um you know i think the, the capacity is about 50 at any one time but they want to be able to take it to say 75 80 there's, there's definitely the demand there for it so one of the ways that they're considering doing it is is doing porter cabins in the car park but you know if, yeah. you're, if you don't have that for physical facility on on site um then either using the porter cabins to create a supplementary facility or alternatively using the porter cabin so that the site can be redeveloped and expanded um you know if you've got that option then then that's great if you don't then um yeah like you said you have to maybe find some other alternatives off site yeah i mean where we are at the moment so the way it works with nursery schools are the eyfs the the statutory framework says that you can have a certain amount of children according to the square footage. Yeah. And it, and it depends how old the child is as well. So that's right. Yeah, that's right. Babies, quite ironically, zero to two year olds require more square footage than three to five year olds. Yeah. We at our current site have areas of the nursery that we haven't included in our registration, but we could have done. So really, our registration could be maybe 100 children but it's only 85 so the question is then why don't we use those areas as part of our registration but we feel it would take away from the experience that we already have there you know it would be a constant game of moving children from one space to the other and having you know every space filled whereas when i show parents around the nursery school and I say to them that right now we have 85 children on the premises, they scratch their heads sometimes and think, but where? Because all I see is small groups of children. But that, that that's the positive learning experience that we want to create. That's mm. the comfortable experience we want to create for our staff. We don't want them to be herding children like they're goats from areas to areas because it's getting too crowded. We want it to be you know a nice spacious you know enjoyable uh, place yeah when when i go to when I, when i go to it's actually an interesting thing because i now sort of notice it more and more but when i go and inspect some of these properties that maybe i want to acquire um you know when 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 you can barely walk through 
you, you know, on the one side, on the one hand, it's encouraging. You go, oh, that's positive because you know it's it's obviously a popular centre and there's lots of there's lots of kids here. On the other hand, you know, if you can barely walk without stepping on a kid uh, when you're going on one of these inspections, you're like, it, it's actually like, mm, okay, but this is as a as an experience for you know as an experience, then it, it's not as positive. But then I suppose that that goes with the territory of of maybe if if I'm acquiring a site which has got a good covenant, good financial covenant, doesn't necessarily mean the operator's great. Yeah. Um, actually, to be fair, I think Tonal has a pretty good re uh, reputation. So my current tenant actually is a, is a pretty good operator in that space and we're, we're trying to help them grow amongst others. Um, I mean, look, you, you obviously have, have a very full on life and a, a you know, working life. Um, you, know, you have a lot on your plate, obviously, with work and obviously fa and family as well. Um, you know, what are the positive habits that you're engaged in that, that help support your lifestyle and well-being? Uh, running. I love running. Um, I do a lot of running usually early morning uh, because I find that my body just works best at that time. Um, yeah, I was out this morning. I did a 10K. Uh, yeah, I, I, I pretty much I run 10K every day. Uh, yeah. I have done now. Uh, I've been running for probably about 10 years, but the last couple of years, I have to say, I've really upped um, my mileage over the over the week. Um, and yeah, it clears my mind. Um, I listen to well, I listen to music very loud on my headphones. Um, when people see me running through our village, um, they say sometimes it's almost like you're doing a bit of a dance. Um, <laughs> but it's my only chance. It's my closest. It's the closest thing I've got to nightclubbing now. Um, <laughs> I, well, I think I told you this, but my personal trainer saw you saw you running a, a couple of weeks back, and he said that you looked like you were shadow boxing or something when you were yeah. when you were doing it. So you're clearly clearly having fun while you do it. And since since you're spending a lot of time in in Christchurch and down by the sea, I think you you're quite enjoying the uh, uh, cold you know cold swims and things like that, and enjoying the sea. Yeah, um, it, it's quite restorative, I guess. Yeah, I mean, like you, I I, I love this idea about cold water therapy. So um i'm a member of a of a gym where i don't really use the gym because i do running and i only really use it for steam sauna and for the cold plunge and i think that's a, a another key aspect of my downtime as well i love going and having a, a steam or a sauna and a plunge um and down in christchurch as well i stay with my parents down there for a few nights a week and I can see the sea from my bedroom window. So the first thing I do in the morning is open the blinds and see how calm it is and whether it's appropriate to go and have a swim. And uh, yeah, love it. I've, and, that's, uh, and, and that's whether it's June or January, you're, you, you're, you're in the water. Yeah, I'm quite averse to wearing a wetsuit. Um, uh, I was actually speaking to somebody today at because I went for a steam earlier and there's a guy who goes down to Dorset and he wears the wetsuit. And I said, I can't do it because I just don't like the, the buoyancy. Um, but I've got um, one of the caps um, and I need to invest in some gloves and um, uh, some uh, uh, the, the foot things, um, the sock type things. But yeah, I love it in the winter. Um, surprisingly, it's warmer in December and January than it is in, in February or March. But it does get very, very cold. Um, and there's a sense of camaraderie as well, because when I walk down to the beach, it's sort of the same people every day who are down there. And 
you know how good it is for you because regardless of what it's doing to your body everyone's so happy yeah everyone's so happy um yeah it's amazing yeah i i I think um one of the things that sort of alerted me to that i suppose the social benefits of of that um there was a a great uh documentary i watched on netflix it was about the 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 communities that that swam in the ponds at um uh, um, uh, at Hampstead Heath, and particularly they had this. Uh, it was I think they were called the East German Ladies uh, Swimming Team, which obviously is a joke because they're all men. Uh, but and um, but you could just see that they had this lovely community, and you know, and and the, the most they they're probably the most excited they ever were was when they had to break through the ice on the ponds and go and, and and go and have a swim and when i was watching it at the time i wasn't into cold water therapy and i was like oh my god these guys are idiots they're insane and then once i got into it i'm like i can actually understand the appeal and then if you it's, it's great when you do it on your own and then t- to be able to do that and share that experience with uh, a bunch of uh, like-minded individuals you can see why they build this lovely uh, lovely camaraderie and community around it um speaking of other things that kind of you know positive influences um do you do you do much reading do you you know and if you do are there are particular types of uh, books and uh, and content that you like to consume is there anything like that that that's also helping supplement your you know your lifestyle and, and your well-being yeah i'd say that um i'd say i'm an avid reader now whether that means that i consume a lot of books is another question really but I, you know, I, I love reading. I've always, from an early age, love reading newspapers and read the newspaper every day. I think that's where that that, that passion for politics and world affairs has come in. I, actually, it's interesting. Uh, I think I may have said this to you before, but I always go to the obituaries first. Yes, yes. I love reading the obituaries. It's 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 pretty weird thing to say, but there but is. Talk, talk us through that. Talk us through the the, the motivation there. I think it's just quite like I've never really read the obituaries and felt a sense of negativity. It's all positive, quite life affirming, lots of lessons, um, often very humorous. Like, you know, we're speaking today on Friday. Yesterday, Michael Parkinson died. Of course. And um you know, I think I I messaged you and I said, oh, I feel a bit sad about parking. You messaged back and said, so do I. And you sent this funny story about Michael Parkinson and Elton John. Yeah. And this morning when I woke up, the first thing I did was go to the obituaries and thought in my mind, I wonder whether they've done a parky. They would have done a parky obituary and I haven't read it yet, but I've starred it to read later. And I was thinking. I hope there are some other funny anecdotes and vignettes like that in there about about him. Um, and that's and that's what it's about. I, I just find it. I, I like learning about people. And sometimes you learn the most about them, maybe after they've passed. Um, and uh, yeah, that's why I like reading the obituaries. <laughs> I, I, I think I, I mean, just on that, I think particularly in the case of someone like Mark, Michael Parkinson, who was a huge part of our lives growing uh, growing up. And I, I know some of our younger listeners and viewers won't won't maybe know who Michael Parkinson is. But I think anyone over the age of probably about 30, 35 will have had some experience or exposure to Michael Parkinson. And, 
you know, the 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 term national treasure does it does get often get bannered around a bit too much. But someone like Michael Parkinson, who you know, who was a, a, a you know a very pre uh, preeminent journalist, had uh, probably the 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 num the top number one talk show um, in the country going back into the late late two thousands, and um, you know, and he, but of course, he, he stopped doing the Parkinson show, and he, he he was less and less a presence on our on our screens and and on and on on the airwaves, and so, you know, out of sight is out of mind, and so, but it shows how very quickly we forget how great an individual he and other other people were, and sometimes I guess, like in the case of obituaries, if someone dies in the mid to late eighties, but they've been out of the public sphere for let's call it 15 years 10 years it's an opportunity mm. to relive and re-experience these wonderful people um again and it's it, it, they serve also i think as a a lovely reminder of of how great they were and and how easy it is to forget what a profound important impact that they they had on us very, very quickly, I actually read the opening paragraph of his obituary today. And you, you know that I'm a very big cricket fan. Of I mean, course. That's, that's how I wind down as well, particularly test cricket. Parkey was a very good cricketer and very good friends with Dickie Bird. Both of their dads worked in the mines together. And Parkey actually played for Barnsley Cricket Club and kept Jeff Boycott out of the team. No. So Jeff Boycott was relegated to the second 11 because of Michael Parkinson and he was fuming. So Parkey actually had a trial with Yorkshire alongside Dickie Bird and it was awful. Fred Truman kept bowling Parkey out. So the coach who was there said to Dickie Bird, who's your friend? And Dickie Bird said, our dads work down the mines together. And he said, tell your friend to stick to mining. <laughs> and something that's the reason the obituary is so great because it puts a smile on your face yeah you, you get these great stories and anecdotes which you know often don't you don't discover or often aren't talked about um nick we're 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 over two hours runtime so we are going to have to wind wind it down but um if you were to you know it, it, let's say 90 seconds or less if you were to give some uh, you know give some advice to your younger self and you can pick the age whether that's 16 17 18 maybe 21 you know what what would you say to yourself uh, your younger self what 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 self talk would you give your your younger self if you had the opportunity to to speak speak to them now uh i'd probably say go easy on yourself um take things one step at a time keep moving forward be positive despite any setbacks that might occur and if they do occur, they will most likely turn into very valuable learning curves. Um, I think sometimes we get bogged down with problems and issues that happen within your business or your life. Essentially, they're just events. I think I've become a little bit more, a little bit more stoical. I, I'm not, I'm not the finished article. Um, but if something negative happens within the business today you just got to deal with it because it's quite likely something even worse will happen tomorrow um and yeah just don't be so hard on yourself just keep moving forwards 
Um, yeah, that's it, really. Uh, well, listen, that's uh, it, it's great advice. Um, and I'm sure many of our listeners can can apply that to their, their lives today and, and in the future. Um, Nick, assuming you want people to, if our listeners uh, or viewers to reach out, what's the best way for someone to get hold of you? Uh, reach uh, out to you? Well, um, I'm not on Twitter or X. Um, I'm not, I mean, we're at twinehamhouse.co.uk. Um, if a- anybody wants to send me an email, it's nickhillcapilla at twinehamhouse.co.uk. Um, I don't really use social media that much. Um, I think we've got some Twinham House. Uh, Isha normally deals with this, but we've got, I think, an Instagram handle and Facebook page. Find us on Facebook. Actually, that's a really good place. You see what all the children are up to on a daily basis and see what uh, a wonderful learning experience it is at the nursery. Well, I'm, I'm fully expecting your email inbox to blow up. Uh, as a result of that, Nick. So thank you very much for for joining us today. It's been uh, it's been fascinating. I've I've loved it, and despite knowing you very well, um, I've learned a hell of a lot about you as well that I didn't already know. So for me, it's been a gift and a privilege. Um, Nick, thank you very much, and Thanks, Mike. Uh, it's been a pleasure. I'm sure we will have you on again soon. Thank you Bye. so much. A big thank you goes out to the official sponsor of the Property Funder podcast, Avonmore Capital, a property bridging and development lender located here in London. They, as much as me, understand the importance of somebody's story and how they got to where they are. Lending on projects from just £250,000 across the entirety of England and Wales, their understanding of all development backgrounds and can help support you at any stage in a scheme, even if you just have one brick down. Visit www avonmorecapital.com to find out more about how they can help you in your development journey. Thanks so much for tuning into this podcast. I hope you can go away having learned something new and even picked up some new things to apply to your day today. Catch us in the next episode for another interesting story.